Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Here's a good rule on a crisis. If there's not bipartisan agreement, then it needs to wait. That's right. Amen. You know, if you're not, if your Democratic colleagues aren't concerned or your Republican colleagues aren't concerned, we might need to push pause for a little bit because we got bigger things to pay attention to. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are, of course, going to be talking more about COVID-19 today. In particular, we've gotten a bunch of questions about how is it that governments are able to respond in this crisis? What are the rules? Who has what powers between the state government, the federal government, local governments? So we're going to attempt to give you some insight into that in our main segment and cover kind of the headlines in our first segment. And as always, we'll end with what's on our minds outside of politics. We thought we would start today with this beautiful insight from Laura. She says that 
she's been thinking a lot about advice from fellow doctors on dealing with a crisis. And one in particular shared a quote from a blog piece that she's been looking at. He writes, remind yourself daily that you are trained to deal with the situation, even if that means lying to yourself a little bit. She says, we are all trained and we are afraid and we are underprepared and we are still ready. It is all true for all of us at the same time. This is a moment of solidarity as a global community together, but apart. I love that so much, especially the part about just being willing to lie to yourself a little bit, even where we don't feel equipped, because that is definitely how I feel most days. I do not feel equipped for this, but I also can do it. Even if you're not equipped, you got to do it. You know what I mean? That's what it means, right? Is that whether or not you're trained, everything you have experienced up into your life is what you've got to work with. So kind of keeping in mind that you might not be in total control, you might not have every information, every tool, everything at your disposal, but I think most of us look at people in really um, brave moments, moments of crisis when they're being really courageous and they're not waiting around or wishing that they had something different or they knew something different or the situation was different. They're responding to what's in front of them and that's what we're all doing right now and I think that that is the best we can ask for. And so many teachers, doctors, janitors, nurses, parents, everybody, you know, small business owners, everybody is just stepping up and doing it. And it's hard. And I know it's scary sometimes. And we, we want you to all know that we understand and hear all of the different situations you're out there navigating. We read every email that comes to us and really try to think about that person in the moment and hold on to what we learn from those messages. Um, my heart really kind of exploded this morning going through our inboxes, but it makes us so much better that we hear your stories, and I hope that it's helpful to you to tell them and for all of us to just keep in mind that we're living a lot of different stories right now. We got a message over the weekend from a minister in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and wanted to take a moment and send lots of light and love to the people there. On top of everything else, they had a tornado over the weekend. We experienced tornado warnings in Paducah, and that was terrifying enough. So dealing with an actual tornado touching down and this moment where we're already sort of pushed to our brink with the global pandemic has to be incredibly difficult. The one thing I did read that was encouraging from the news reports is, first and foremost, there were no deaths in Jonesboro. Nobody lost their life due to the tornado. And they think in part it's because everyone was social distancing and they were home. And so they were places they were familiar with and could easily take shelter. And so we're grateful that nobody lost their life. But we know that dealing with the wreckage left by a tornado is one more additional crisis on that community. And, and we're thinking about them. In a fit of drama, the CARES Act passed the House. It was more dramatic than it needed to be because of my representative, Thomas Massey, who wanted a recorded vote. And if you're wondering what that means, a voice vote is the kind of voting that you probably have done many times in your life in a church or in a meeting somewhere where the person says, all in favor say aye, and opposed nay, and then the presiding officer in his or her best exercise of judgment, says the ayes have it and the motion passes. The House conducts a lot of business that way. 
A recorded vote is where all of the members of Congress, you know, of the House, 435 people, have to go put a card in a machine to record yes, no, or present in that machine. And so the reason that Thomas Massey's grandstand, and it was because this was certain to pass, was a big deal, is that he required members of Congress who were on recess to come back into Washington, D.C., Uh, when it was not a good idea for them or for all of us that they do so to put their cards in. They ultimately did not do that recorded vote, but many of them did go back to D.C. So the motion passed. Congress is already preparing for the fourth piece of legislation related to coronavirus because it is so clear that what's been done so far is not going to be adequate to get the economy back up and on its feet. I mean, when Beth Silvers and Donald Trump are both livid at you and calling you <laughs> a grandstander. You need to reevaluate your life, Thomas Massey. That's all I got to say about that. Um, we're getting lots and lots of questions and concerns about the CARES Act and the fact that it's not enough. Carrie, one of our listeners, and my friend Leslie both live in Orange County and pointed out that, you know, $90,000 is the poverty line for a family of four in Orange County. And so the idea that anyone making over 99 doesn't need the money is, you know, as a universal rule across the country, when we all know how dramatically the quality of life and cost of living varies according to geographic location, is really hard and why they're not done and why we're going to need more phases. Because one check, even if it has Donald Trump's signature on it, which he's pushing for, is not going to do it. Yeah, there are lots of ideas floating around about what the next stage could look like. But just shows you how critical timing is when you think about the fact that the calendar is about to turn into April, which means so many people are going to have rent due and an assortment of bills coming their way for utilities. Businesses are going to have those expenses due even though they're not able to operate. They're still accruing regular operating expenses. And so even knowing $1,200 is coming is not enough relief for people who are going to feel the pain of that monthly transition over the next couple of weeks. So Congress is talking about, do we extend some of the benefits from this package over a longer period of time? Do we put more money into state governments that are dealing with new spending plus a lot of lost tax revenue? Do we do more stimulus money? And if so, to whom do we direct it? Well, what I'm really hoping becomes an issue for Congress to pay attention to is more and more data based on what we did wrong up until this point and how we can right those wrongs and find ourselves on firmer footing moving forward. There was lots of analysis over the weekend that, you know, a complete and total failure of testing, including faulty tests from the CDC and then bureaucratic red tape that didn't allow private industry to come to the table and start putting testing out there available to the mass Americans not to mention lack of supplies required to do the testing to begin with, seems to be what everyone (laughs) can agree on is what went wrong. Instead, we wasted valuable time in January and February when we should have really scaled up testing. And so I hope, you know, phase four has a lot of attention and innovation and solutions to this problem so that, you know, let's say in a really, really positive outlook that we are done by April 30th, we can't all just roll in and expect it not to fire up because a lot of us will still not have any uh, immunity to the virus. And so I hope it's not just throwing money at 
the economy, which is really important, but I hope that there is um, some real organization around testing because it's not going to come from the executive branch. What we're seeing, not just in the failure that got us here, but still moving forward is a complete and total lack of leadership from the executive branch. There's still not a lot of coordination with regards to logistics for PPE and the supply chain. And so I just, you know, as they work on phase four, I hope it's not just economic stuff, but it's like a real analysis of what went wrong and how to prevent that moving forward, because we cannot wait on the Trump administration to do that analysis. Well, and you also see in articles talking about how we know when we can roll back some social distancing. And all of them say it is not until we have testing available for darn near everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we just we must prioritize getting those tests out and available. And I'm concerned about vetting those tests appropriately, given everyone's desire to just get them quickly. Uh, I don't want to make a bad situation worse by rushing to get tests to the market that are not ready. It's it's a really hard problem. And I appreciate all the people who are working so diligently on it. From the side of someone who is waiting for test results, we got a message from Jill that is such a beautiful description of what it can feel like to not know if you have this virus that we wanted to share it. She said, waiting for the COVID test results can look a lot like scrunched eyebrows and teary eyes. It can look like angry voices yelling about inconsequential things because scared a lot of times looks like angry. Mm -hmm. It can look like excusing yourself to the bathroom to get the sobs out without scaring the kids. It can also look like yelling at those same kids and scaring them anyway, because can't they just listen? Don't they know? Mm -hmm. It can look like searching for places that might have oxygen sensors in stock and fretting over low stores of almond milk and eggs and, yes, definitely wine, and kicking yourself for not buying Tylenol when there was some left on the shelves. And wait, was that a cough I heard? And does he look more run down? It can look like laying awake and reaching over to your sick spouse in the middle of the night to make sure they're still breathing, still alive. It can look like reading about young people dying, too, and mind spiraling, imagining the worst, Googling how to make a will fast and deciding if witnesses can witness through FaceTime or if our 80-year-old neighbor could do it. But man, we could kill her with our germs. So who will take the kids if it gets us both? It can look like deep breaths and friends and family who sit with you in your fear instead of running away from the pain. It can look like shame, embarrassment, not wanting anyone to know. It can look like rage at people who think money is more important than human lives, my husband's life. It can look like reading about some guy also with asthma who ended up in critical condition and refreshing too often because somehow if he survives, then we might be okay. Probably everything will be okay, of course. Positive test or not, everything will probably be okay. And Jill has since learned that her husband did test positive and her entire family now has COVID-19. So keep... Jill, in your thoughts, for sure, we wanted to share because of these sort of waiting games everybody's playing with test results and concerns about whether or not you need a test that Apple now has a new tool available. It's We've got the link in the show notes, but it's apple.com slash COVID-19. And just like everything Apple does, it is an incredibly user-friendly interface that will help you walk through whether you're concerned about yourself or someone else, what the symptoms are and what steps you should take next. I've been thinking a lot about the term cascade of interventions, which I learned when I was getting ready to have my first baby. I read every book on birth. I feel like I studied harder for birth than the bar exam. And 
In those birth books, they talk a lot about how if you start to interfere with sort of the natural process of birth early, that can lead to another intervention and another and another and another and how it kind of takes you down this path. And that phrase is on my mind because of the way that everything around this virus ripples out in so many different directions and the ways that all these pressure points in our system interact with one another. And so you might think that immigration is kind of a separate issue from a virus, but the public charge rule, which the Trump administration is now implementing after it worked its way through the court system up to the Supreme Court, is impacting coronavirus because the public charge rule says that the government is able to deny green cards and visas to immigrants who rely on public benefits. Last week, the administration, under lots of pressure, announced that immigrants who undergo testing or treatment for COVID-19 won't be denied visas or green cards. But because of all of the discussion around this rule, people are scared and they are confused and they feel like they have to make a trade-off between their health and safety and being able to stay here in the country, which is also about their health and safety in other dimensions. And that Guardian has a heartbreaking story about a woman whose father has pancreatic cancer and they're not getting treatment for him because of this rule. And so Mm. it's just it's a shameful rule. I think the way that the Trump administration took this piece of immigration law that has been around for a while and amped it up. But it also seriously impacts our ability to have people getting tested and getting the treatment that they need when that has a massive effect on the people around them. You also have people in immigration detention centers on hunger strikes to protest the deteriorating conditions, the lack of soap, the ability to wash their hands and protect themselves from COVID-19, not to mention just the increased risk because you can't socially distance in a facility like that. You see the same thing in many prisons. There was a story this weekend about how they're releasing women incarcerated with their babies. And it's like, how can this not give us a moment to stop and think, wait, (laughs) we're incarcerating women with their babies? It's like it exposes and lays bare all these areas of our society where people are suffering, where there is crises. You know, we've gotten message from listeners who work in the homeless community and how they're at greater risk. Um, I have a friend who runs a charity that provides supplies to kids who are removed from their home. They're infants or they're teenagers. They try to give them something so that they have something of their own. And they've seen Quest skyrocket because when kids are home from school, a lot of at-risk behavior from their parents who are also under stress also goes up. And so the kids then must be removed from the home. You know, we even heard it from a teacher who said, you know, I am having to basically relearn how to teach for in a completely new environment. I have a friend who lives at home who says, like, I'm working harder than I ever have because I I can't do it in a classroom. I have to record it all. I have to video it all. Um, It's a huge workload. And then the listener we heard from also has two children at home, one of which is special needs, and she feels like she's ignoring their education. And, you know, she reached out to us to say, I'd love to hear from anybody who understands how to balance this. So all these points, both small in our personal life, up to societal level, all these issues are just being magnified, intensified because of the coronavirus. And that's not to overload you or to be discouraging. But I think it is important to start thinking in our own lives, in our own communities, wait, who might 
be at extra risk because of our current crisis? Is there anything I can do? Um, Is there anyone I should check on? It's just, it's a lot right now. We really, really need each other. In my mind, it's another reason to go back to that sense of, okay, the blocks are all on the table. It's come crashing down. Let's stop for a second before we build again and ask how we want to build it. Because you can see all of these places where we were failing each other. And we have a chance to to think differently about that. I saw a proposal from Representative Tlaib in Michigan, who I struggle to find lots of agreement with, honestly. But she was talking about a very intense form of universal basic income and truly universal, not based on means, just loading up cards with cash and keeping them replenished. I think it was like at a $2,000 level for every American until this is over. And I thought, you know what? Let's talk about that. It's not a terrible idea. It's very aggressive, but we need really aggressive right now. I mean, this is the time when the government can be most helpful. In that vein, to Sarah's point about coordination of supply chain and logistics for testing, I am frustrated that the president has touted his skills and passion for manufacturing for so long and is not taking that piece of this and running with it, because that is the piece Mm -hmm. that the federal government can really run with, as we'll talk about more in a second. And I am coming to understand through really good reporting, especially from The New York Times, how much of a manufacturing issue this is. I thought we should mention the shortage in ventilators in particular and the fact that public health officials realized 13 years ago that we did not have enough ventilators in the United States for a crisis. And they built a plan, and they wanted to have portable ventilators designed and put in storage so they could be deployed wherever needed in a crisis. And Congress apportioned money for that, and a contract was signed, and work was started, and it was going really well. Public health officials were going to visit this small company in California to see what was going on regularly. They were getting status reports on the project. It was humming along until... As part of the consolidation in the healthcare industry overall, a multi-billion dollar medical device maker, Covidian, bought that company that had been hired to design the new machines and just shut the project down because it was like small potatoes in their portfolio. It wasn't profitable enough. Mm. And so then we restarted this project in 2014. And the ventilator was approved last year, but the products haven't been delivered yet. And it just frustrates me that we have this president who who says he has manufacturing experience and know-how and could put his foot on the accelerator in this specific category and doesn't seem to be doing it and, and making public statements like, get it yourself, governors. Well, not to mention the GM debacle that the reporting was Jared Kushner just had concerns that, you know, a billion dollars is a lot of money. And what if we spend that money? And we don't use all the ventilators. And I thought, I, I don't understand. And I have to be really careful. I'm, I'm keeping my voice, my voice very calm because I just don't have the mental or emotional or psychological capacity to think about the fact that my family and other people's families and the lives lost are just due to a complete lack of leadership. It's not to say that COVID-19 was not going to happen. It absolutely was going to happen no matter what. And everybody saw the writing on the wall that a global pandemic that hit the United States was just a matter of time. But the lack of leadership 
um, that led to the lack of testing that's leading to the lack of supplies is unacceptable and a disaster that I think will be written about and in our history books for the rest of this country's existence. Luckily, the lack of federal leadership is not reflected in the messages we're hearing you about your local leaders. It's been so uplifting to hear all of your messages and to read all the stories and links you're sending us about the people doing a great job where you live, especially the blessing that is Governor Walls of Minnesota and the TikTok he performed with his family members, which was the cutest thing I proposed, which I still don't think it's a bad idea, that the governor with the best PSA TikTok should be president next time. Oh, that's the presidential nominating process now. Just the right. governor with the best, best TikTok. TikTok. I'm right. not going to be mad at you about that because, you know, I love a governor. So I, we're like halfway there for me already. So much love is coming into us from Minnesotans about their governor. And we're hearing exactly what we're hearing in Kentucky, that like even staunch Republicans are so appreciative of the way he's handled this crisis, that he's making hard decisions, cracking down on price gouging, that he's really valuing people like grocery store workers who do really hard, scary, dangerous work right now, um, that he has been compassionate and just honest about the data. So congratulations, Minnesotans, on making a good decision in your governor. And thank you, Governor Waltz, and all the people who surround him and work with him to make this kind of response possible. It sounds like he needs to get on the um, daily conference call with Bashir and DeWine. Like, it just sounds like, the. It, I mean, the governors who are really on top of it seem to be communicating a lot. I like that. I'd like to be on that text thread. I want to hear uh, who they're mad at. I know in our state, it's Tennessee. He's really, mm-hmm. you know, He's just, he's getting less and less guarded in his <laughs> language. So good on all the governors out there, you know, sucking it up, making the hard choices and leading during this time. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. 
and I stopped and I closed my eyes and I pictured my last therapist who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought this is just how time feels now and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it, it just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I wanna adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So over the weekend, Donald Trump, he likes to float ideas out there, which not as helpful as um, just leading with a clear and consistent message, but it is what it is. And so he floated some ideas this weekend and last weekend. One was, oh, we should just be done by Easter. Another was on the uh, totally other end of the spectrum. Let's quarantine three states. And I think every time he he floats those ideas and he puts out conflicting messages, especially because often what he is advising or his guidelines are in conflict with some of the more aggressive strategies coming out from those governors we were talking about before the break, we get a ton of questions, which is, can he do that? What does that mean if my governor is putting in harsher guidelines? If he shuts, if he says we should all go back to work by Easter, does that mean we have to or can we continue to follow the social distance guidelines from our governor? So that's what we're going to try to get to today is was what is it? What does this all mean if what you're hearing from your governor's press conference is different from what you're hearing from the presidential press conference? So let's go back to like the general starting point that when we're asking, is this legal? We are asking a theoretical question mm-hmm. <laughs> because what matters is. What law is going to get enforced here and who is going to enforce it? I feel like it's just a good assumption. Is it legal? Maybe. Just whatever the question is. That's actually what they teach us in law school. Maybe. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Um, and so the reality that we all need to hold in our minds 
is that courts have historically been extremely flexible on any topic that involves national security. And for a lot of our country's history, protecting against pandemics was the same as national security. This is the rare occasion where some early Americans actually had more experience with the problem legally than we have. Pandemics Mm. were just a fact of life for a very long time. And so we do have quite a bit of case law about pandemics. All of that case law views it in this intense public health, national security kind of prism. And so there is a lot of deference to what a governor or a president does in that crisis circumstance. Can I just take a a quick detour and say that point you just made about much of human history dealing with global pandemics is a really uh, good thing to point out to all your relatives obsessed with conspiracy theories about pandemics as if they're a new thing of the modern age and the modern media. Just quick side note. It's so true. That is so important. Okay. The Constitution of the United States gives the federal government what we call enumerated powers only. If it is not in this document, affirmatively granted to the federal government, we've got to assume that it belongs to the states. And the term that we use for that big bucket of powers that belong to the states is police powers. We're not talking about police like armed officers. We're talking about the authority of states to take care of our welfare and safety and health through laws that belong to them. That's state's jurisdiction federal government only has what is specifically spelled out in the Constitution. As it turns out, though, that's a lot still. The federal government can still do lots of things. So let's talk about some things that the federal government does have authority over. So clearly authority over the border, grounding planes, travel bans, those are explicitly enumerated and given to the federal government. And, you know, for what it's worth, What the Trump administration did, especially in banning travelers from China, did buy us some time and was impactful on the spread of the virus. Unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. The president also has broad authority under the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Response and Emergency Assistance Act, which you probably heard. You probably heard, oh, he's going to activate the Stafford Act. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that the federal government supports state and local efforts and allows them to draw on resources of the federal agencies to help with search and rescue, food, shelter, medicine, transportation, issue public warnings during times of disaster or emergencies. It basically just delegates the legislative authority to the president in an emergency. And it gets used a lot for lots of things you probably wouldn't even consider an emergency. But Trump specifically triggered the Stafford Act on March 13th in a letter of Congress, and that's how they're putting in place waivers for regulations to use telehealth and practice medicine across state lines without a license, and um, also how states are getting lots and lots of money from FEMA. And there's a little bit of a check on the Stafford Act in that it has to be requested by governors and tribal leaders. There's a really great piece that we'll link in the show notes from one of the representatives in Congress who authored the Stafford Act. He wrote it after tornadoes in Pennsylvania were absolutely devastating. I think it was in the 1980s, and the federal government basically did nothing. 
And this piece explains what led to the passage of the Stafford Act and why this person says coronavirus is exactly the kind of situation that the Stafford Act is there to support. Right now, the president has called the coronavirus an emergency under the act. And so that opens all these powers that Sarah was just talking about. He can take it one step farther if he declares it a national catastrophe, which would give him even more authority. Which is both scary and maybe needed. I think that's the really difficult discussion happening around presidential power, especially if you're not a fan of the president. And so what we're seeing is, oh, my gosh, this is what happens when the federal government doesn't step in and um, work out the logistic of what states what's going to get what. I mean, I think I heard a quote over the weekend that I think is exactly right, which is at the end of this, we're going to find out that one hospital had closets full of PPE and one hospital went without for months because, you know, when left to their own devices, they're protecting themselves and their communities. And you see this even with sort of the governmental battles between the states um, when there's not someone stepping up and organizing and saying this is how this is going to work. Not always with perfect results. It's not like we look back at natural disasters and think, man, the federal government really knocked it out of the park every time. But I think the, you know, the absence of that leadership comes in stark relief. And then you're also faced with, okay, well, if we want more leadership, it has to come from someone I really don't trust. And I think that's that's just something that we're all having to face. And it's really difficult. And there's not an easy answer. And there's also just not an easy answer to the question of could he go too far here? Because like we said at the beginning, the courts have been very deferential in emergent situations. It's also true that almost always a court is going to say, did this person act reasonably? And so I think that if there were to be scrutiny legally of the president's actions, it would be around, like, did he act out of a nefarious intent? Not incompetence, but like, did he deliberately for a purpose that was racist withhold certain aid or something like that? And even that, I think, would be really difficult to argue and prove if the courts would even hear it. So the political check is much more important than the judicial check at this point. But I will say... Like, for example, would you point to the fact that Florida is getting 200 percent more than anybody else out of the national stockpile, considering that Florida is a swing state. I mean, seriously, if I were a lawyer, I would be collecting examples like that. The examples like him saying that Mike Pence shouldn't return calls from Governor Whitner. Whitmer and Mm -hmm. Governor Inslee because they aren't nice enough to the administration, you know, punishing an entire state of people and putting their lives at risk because he doesn't like the tone from that woman governor, as he said. I would be collecting those things in case an eventual lawsuit is appropriate, but it would be a very uphill battle. So this this coordination of, in particular, um, private sector resources, this conversation comes out of another piece of legislation, the Defense Production Act. It was passed in 1950 in response to the Korean War production needs. It's a really primary source of presidential authority that allows the president to expedite and expand the supply of resources from the private sector to support the public. So there are pri- there's three parts of this legislation, priorities and allocations. So the president can require corporations to accept and prioritize contracts 
for services and materials deemed necessary to aid U.S. national defense. Because, you know, you ha- you're running up against a corporation that is required to turn a profit and fulfill its bottom line and pay its bills, and then a real mismatch of resources on the state side. And so you might have a hot spot in a state with not many resources. And so the corporation is going to fill the contract that's offering a higher price, even though the state might have a much dire need but not the resources to win basically the contract. The second part of this legislation is the expansion of productive capacity and supply. So the president can create incentives for producing critical needs. And then the third part is just general provisions that establish authority to negotiate with industry um, to maybe halt any sort of foreign corporate mergers that would threaten national security and create a volunteer block of industry executives who could be called to government service. So that's what the federal government can do. And again, it's a lot. States can do even more. Mm -hmm. Most states have laws that are similar to the Stafford Act that provide all kinds of flexibility to the governor that delegate that power that exists in the legislature to the executive in emergent situations. So this means governors can impose curfews. They can order traffic off the streets. They can ration goods, declare price controls. They can suspend alcohol consumption if they want to. Uh, They are allowed to limit public gatherings. All of these shelter-in-place orders are almost certainly legal. We have tons of precedent saying that governors are allowed to issue quarantine and isolation orders. We even have precedent saying that we could fine people if there were a COVID-19 vaccine available and a governor mandated that people take it and find people who wouldn't, that is probably okay under prior Supreme Court precedent. How this court would view it, I don't know. But we have so much power vested in governors under previous case law that what a governor does, a county judge, a mayor, again, is much more likely to be constrained by the political fallout of those actions than by a court. And I think that's what's really important to remember is that because the states have such broad powers, because it's not as if the Constitution enumerates that the federal government has sole authority over quarantine and all these police powers, but just the opposite, that those many of those are reserved to the state. Let's say there's a scenario in which Donald Trump says, everybody go back to work. But Governor Bashir says, no, we're not doing that here then the governor's authority would still stand and we would still, um, as Kentuckians, be required to follow those orders. And you can see this kind of dance between the federal government and state governments happening in real time. So the president's quarantine idea for New York and Connecticut and New Jersey that he floated was resolved after the governor of New York said, hey, that's not okay." by the CDC issuing a formal travel advisory for those governors to administer. And that's really been consistent with our understanding of how power flows in the United States over time, that the federal government has a unique ability through the CDC to know what the public health guidance ought to be, but then states are to implement that guidance. What do you make of the message we got from a listener uh, who shared an NPR article that the CDC usually is on the front line, especially in briefings, sharing the information, leading the country through times like this, and that they've really been sidelined, especially with regards to sort of the public outreach of the administrative response. Can I give you my non-grace-filled response first? Can mm-hmm. I just be in a protective bubble where it's okay for a second to not be grace-filled? Yes, I nearly please. 
lit on fire. The postcard that came to me that said President Trump's coronavirus preparation plan or whatever Mm -hmm. it said. Because honestly, the branding initiative around the management of this crisis makes my blood run cold. I am so angry about it. Okay, I will say in what I hope is a more nuanced and grace-filled way. My deepest hope is that the people at the CDC are just too busy to be at the microphone about this and that all of their hard, diligent work is being funneled through experts like Dr. Fauci and that it is reaching the administration and the public through Dr. Fauci to a lesser extent through Dr. Burks. And I say lesser only because she really has adopted, and it might be necessary. I understand that sometimes you work for a person like Donald Trump, you realize that you will not be allowed to do your job if you don't engage in some public, what's the word I'm looking for? Public brown nosing. But Mm -hmm. she does it in a way that I struggle to keep holding her as a credible expert because of that public brown nosing. But but I hope yeah. that I am completely wrong and that she is just doing what she has to do to keep giving him her best advice and having her, him listen to it. Because he did. I mean, it is a big deal for him to say, I want packed churches on Easter Sunday to now it's not going to happen by Easter Sunday. It's going to take longer because the experts mm-hmm. say so. I am so grateful for the people who convinced him of that. So I hope that things are working just fine. They're just working in a different way than we're used to seeing. Well, and I think I, I forgot who Fauci was doing an interview with, and he was basically pushing him on, like, how he deals with Trump or the fact that he praises him or whatever. And Fauci was like, what do you want me to do? Literally, like, yep. what would you like me to do? I am <laughs> I mean, I think the thing we can agree is that particularly the medical experts, they're doing the best they can. And that's going to have to do for now because— Again, what do we want them to do? Cuss them out in the prefing? Like, what's that going to get us? But yeah, the you know, I did have a, I don't know if it's grace or cynicism, some sort of like mix of the two. I did have a moment where I thought the fact that he's signing the checks going at when usually it's just the Treasury Department official or whatever is a little brilliant and something I wish Obama had done when they sent out the 2008 checks. And I think, you know, I saw a tweet that was like, believe those people in that administration regret not doing something like that. Now, Obama didn't cause the 2008 recession. So there's a slight difference there. But I mean, credit where credit is due. If you're trying to to brand a response and get credit for it. It's not a bad idea. See, I hate that so much. Because, again, we've got this situation, if no situation makes the point, this one does, that we do not need a celebrity as the president. We do Mm -hmm. not need someone who makes you excited and want to go to a rally and wear T-shirts with his name on them. We need a person. And I'm not saying that Obama would have handled this poorly. I'm not saying anything other than we elect presidents on the wrong characteristics. And I don't want a president who wants to sign his own name to the check. I want a president who's too busy to even ask that question and who just wants the entire administrative infrastructure of our government to function at its highest, best level in this crisis. And I know that you want that too. All of the feelings that I have about the presidency and the way that it has evolved over time are like coming to a head in this situation as well. It's just part of the cascade. Well, yeah. And I think the way the where you see this really problematically. I mean, it's not just the absence of PPE and ventilators and the complete 
just giving up of any responsibility or attempt to step up as the federal government with the unique powers they do and solve it. I think where you really see their just absence on the field is these tensions between the states themselves. Rhode Island is instituting a mandatory 14-day quarantine from all visitors from New York. They're literally sending the National Guard to check people's license plates. Then you have Cuomo saying that's reactionary and he's going to sue. You see really this like lashing out at people from New York and traveling to other parts of the country, which is so unnecessary and so short-sighted. And to me, it's like, do you think a surge isn't happening to you? Do you think that there won't be a surge in Florida and Texas and Rhode Island where people are going to try to go out to other places because there are low supplies or because they're scared or because for any different reason? Like, Like, we're in this together. And so treating it as if these sort of Again, like the virus respects state lines, even though I am really mad at Tennessee, for the record. Um, it's just I think that's where you really see just the total absence of federal leadership. And that travel restriction is really constitutionally problematic because courts have said for a long time that one of the things that makes us a United States is our ability to move freely among the states. So I think governors are probably acting within their legal authority to issue these these restrictions, especially if they are saying, you know, everybody that comes from New York, not just these select people who came from New York are subject to this order. But it still could have really long-term implications in terms of how states interact with one another, how we think about our role in the United States. Another constitutional issue that's coming up in terms of how states exercise their authority is, of course, centered around guns. Because where governors have said that gun stores are non-essentials or sheriffs have said this in some places, mayors, we have lawsuits from the NRA. And the NRA says, and I'm just going to read a quote, the need for enhanced safety during uncertain times is precisely when plaintiffs and their members must be able to exercise their fundamental rights to keep and bear arms. On the other hand, John Flynn-Bett of Every Town for Gun Safety says a surge in gun sales will put many communities at greater risk if guns aren't stored securely and if background checks aren't completed. We have some examples of people improperly pulling guns on other people because they believe those folks might be infected. So there is a safety side to this issue all the way around. But that's where you might see some challenges to states' actions if they run up against what courts would identify as our most fundamental rights. Here's what I want to say about that. I understand as somebody who loves history deeply that it is tempting to lean in to the idea that we are most vulnerable to a loss of rights during a national crisis. And there is much truth to that. There is truth to, you know, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. FDR put Asian Americans in camps. Okay, so I get it. I get it. But in a democracy... The way to push back and to protect those those rights is usually to protect those most vulnerable, not to cling ever tighter to your sort of own personal 
pet protection. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just think if if you want to look at history, then really look at history. It's the rights of vulnerable groups that are sacrificed first. And I'm sorry, but I don't count gun owners as a vulnerable group, either historically or in the present moment. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. So looking at groups that have 
less legal capacity to protect themselves, like those in detention centers, like those in jails. Like, that's where we need to really be paying attention. And then if we are concerned about those rights, then in a democratic in, in a democratic country, the way we push back is through democratic representation and democratic participation, not by stockpiling guns. That's not really working on the institutions themselves or the concerns about constitutional interference. I just, to me, it's it's cherry-picking history to be incredibly short-sighted in both your concerns and what the solution might be. I truthfully don't know how I feel about this other than I have no interest in hearing from the NRA about it. Should anybody stockpile guns right now? I would rather not. I would rather people not stockpile much of anything, right? Because Mm -hmm. we need to have things available to people who need them. Should you be able to go out and buy a gun right now if you're scared and you feel like things are going down a bad path? I would hope that that's not where psychologically most of us are. And at the same time, if people are there, I do think that's a protected right. So I struggle with the, the legal lines around that as it runs up against this entire cultural debate. I feel about this the way I feel about all of the debate about whether abortion is an essential service or an elective procedure, which just also frustrates me. This is not a moment to engage in those battles. That's just mm-hmm. how I feel. This is not a moment to engage in the battle over gun rights or abortion rights or whatever else um, and to purposefully interject those issues into our public discourse. So were I a governor, I probably would not fight the gun battle right now. I would probably say they're essentials and just leave them open. And I would also say that abortion is an essential procedure and just allow it to be available. I would not fight either of those battles right now were I a governor. I mean, I told... A friend of mine who was texting basically our state representative who's trying to do this abortion stuff in Kentucky, like, here's a good rule in a crisis. If there's not bipartisan agreement, then it needs to wait. That's right. Amen. You know, if you're not if your Democratic colleagues aren't concerned or your Republican colleagues aren't concerned, then we might need to push pause for a little bit because we got bigger things to pay attention to. So we talked about the right of the federal government, the rights and responsibilities of the states. The big tension that we're having, and this is a thread that you can hear through this entire show, is that the federal government really isn't holding up its end of the bargain. So the whole premise of our republic is that states have all of this power, but they give up a bunch of it to the federal government in exchange for the federal government to do the things that can only be done at scale. (sighs) Sorry, that's that's my analysis. I'm just frustrated because that's not happening. The tension, (laughs) there's no tension in the tension that's so important to the tension. So we are in tension. Was that good? I think that was brilliant, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, I wanted to comment really quickly on, on this. Like, because we're talking about powers in a crisis, there are a lot of takes out there right now that are like, you know, the libertarian perspective doesn't seem all that attractive right now. And I totally understand that. And I also think it's interesting to listen to people who are serious libertarians about why they actually think their approach would be more effective than some of the approaches we're seeing now. And I think it's important to stop and say, you know, that 
we're talking about like small L libertarian, not the Libertarian Party, which I think is as complex as the Democratic and Republican parties in its way. Not every libertarian believes that you shouldn't even be required to have a license to drive a car, right? There are a lot of libertarians who see a role for government, but a really targeted role. And so I read this piece from the Cato Institute that I thought was really helpful, even though I don't agree with this perspective entirely. But they said, look, the libertarian perspective right now isn't that the government doesn't do anything to help the economy. It's that you give money without regard to need and that you do money directly to individuals and not to corporations and that you have less bureaucracy to try to get more testing available and you have fewer occupational licensing requirements so that you have a greater supply of healthcare workers. Now, again, I don't agree with all of that, but I just think that it's not particularly true or productive in the conversation to treat libertarians as though they would all say, well, we just shouldn't have a government. We should be dealing with this in our houses alone. I will say my beef is usually with like hobbyist libertarians (laughs) and the more professional intellectual ones really putting forward a debate of this uh, depth. I have less issue with, you know, Thomas Massey, my representative who caused the whole ridiculous need for members of Congress to go back to Washington. I agree with a lot of his objections to the CARES Act. I don't think he's wrong about a lot of what he's saying. I probably still would have voted for it because I think in an emergency, you got to do the compromise stuff. But philosophically, I think he's right about a lot of it. I just think his approach is more hobbyist libertarian. It's more like, let me be the shocking person. Let me let me show off. Because if you really believe these things as a matter of principle and you're also in a position where you can exercise some power in a crisis, then I think you need to roll up your sleeves and get to work and say, how can I convince my colleagues to look at some of this a little bit differently? And the public reporting about Massey is that he and his staff stopped answering the phone. They wouldn't even take any calls in advance of that vote. They only wanted to do the media stunt stuff. And that infuriates me as one of his constituents. And it should infuriate every American, I think. But I don't want to dismiss the entire libertarian perspective because I do think there are some valuable ideas to consider, even in a crisis moment, about where we can pull back in ways that are actually additions to the response to the public health crisis. And then I also listened to this really interesting discussion that the Constitution Center provided in a podcast about this balance of power and whether there are any limitations on what governments could do. And in it, a professor from LSU, Ed Richards, said that if you are worried about like the libertarian worst case scenario that we're going to have all our freedoms stripped of us or even take an approach like the Chinese government is reporting that it's taking, feel calm because we don't have the logistical capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't even have enough hospital beds. There's no way we can start to put everybody in forced quarantine detention facilities. So the United States is just not set up to go to that extreme today. Now, if you look at the prison system, you might question that perspective because you can see in the prison system where we are set up to do pretty extreme deprivation of individual rights and liberties. But on a grand scale, probably not. And then the other thing I loved from that Constitution Center podcast was just the emphasis from Polly Price, who's a professor at Emory, on the fact that constitutional rights are really important. But this is a moment to also consider the responsibilities of citizenship. And I think any court analyzing these issues would also ask, 
What is the responsibility of an individual in Kentucky to comply with the governor's orders? What is the responsibility of a gun owner in this situation? And it's it's just good to remember that that's a part of the test always, too. Yeah, and I think something we're all really thinking a lot about is the responsibility of being a citizen, this responsibility to our other community members as we as we stay home and we try to stay healthy. It's really hard because I keep thinking about COVID-19 requires you to look at yourself as an other. You have to be the scary stranger mm-hmm. because so many cases are asymptomatic because so many of us are carrying it even when we don't know that we are. So you have to think of yourself as the other at the same time as you're being asked to think of all the others around you as beloved fellow citizens for whom you are willing to make tremendous sacrifices. And that combination is jarring. To think less of yourself and more of others at the same time is jarring. And it's especially jarring, I think, for people who have never been treated like the the scary stranger. And I also think that's where a lot of opportunity for us lies in this crisis, the chance to think about ourselves in relation to other people differently, the chance to think about our rights and responsibilities as existing side by side. How can we contribute? How can we prioritize other people more? Hopefully some good will come of that. So, Beth, we have both now officially finished the Hillary documentary. We had And we're ready to talk about it. (laughs) What did you think? I thought it was really valuable. And one thing that I want to make sure I say before it flies out of my brain, because my brain is like an open system right now where I lose things pretty quickly, um, is that I think it so highlights the importance of women telling other women's stories. I loved about Hillary that there was no effort to resolve or diminish or exploit the complexity of the Clintons. I felt like it just laid it all out and left it there for you to wrestle with. Yeah. Nanette Bernstein, who is the director, just did an incredibly brilliant job of letting Hillary tell the story. All the interviews are so wonderful. You know, as someone who worked for her, spent time with her, thought I knew everything, thought I'd thought everything there was to think about Hillary Clinton. Um, I learned so much about her and her life. And I think the way, you know, she leaves things open, but I think the end of the documentary, which is basically like, you know, she's the tip of the spear. She broke so many things wide open, not just um, in her political life, but before she even met Bill Clinton and became part of our public consciousness, is not to be underestimated. And she deserves uh, so much credit for all that she took on um, pushing against uh roles as a first lady, pushing the narrative as a senator, a secretary of state, and of course, as a presidential candidate. And I think I just, you know, seeing it all together like that in one piece and realizing the the impact of this one woman's life and how she, all that she has been asked to shoulder um, and all that she has shouldered due to her own choices. I didn't think I could respect her or even more than I already do, but it's just, she's made of steel. Like you just, when you see it all put together like that, you're like, How does she do it? How does she, you know, deal with the criticism, the misperceptions, the misinformation, just all of it? And then the impact of her sort of 
leading the charge and taking those hits so that other people can fall behind her. I thought it did a good job of putting the Clintons in generational context mm-hmm. in a way that was not at all. You know, there's a lot of generation content out there that's like very eye-rolly and trite and condescending. But I found it helpful to think more about them as baby boomers, to think more about the war protest kind of experience, mm-hmm. um, to think about the arc of feminism through the lifeline of a baby boomer. And it really helped me understand what I have always viewed and, and what the documentary talks about very openly is kind of a um, how dare you question me attitude along all sorts of lines. But going from his presidency into her presidential run, I never understood why she didn't just kind of level with the criticism more. And I think that this helped me understand it through a generational lens that I hadn't before, that in some ways there's so little trust for all of the places from which that criticism came and a self-righteousness about the fights that she's been in her entire life, uh, deserved in many respects, as you said, that that it almost made it impossible for the criticism to come in enough and for her to trust where it was coming from enough to have that kind of serious open discussion. When you see everything in like one piece like that and you realize the impact of on the the openness to criticism, on the the perception of transparency, you know, I just was thinking like, has anybody in American history lived like really lived through more presidential campaigns than her? I mean, maybe the Bushes because they went through George's, but father, son, brother, yeah, Jeb too. Yeah, but I mean that that's still not front line in the same way you'd be as either the wife of the candidate or the candidate. Like, just that's such a life-changing, impactful experience. And to have gone through it so many times and, you know, the ways in which people felt it, it seemed inclined to deliberately misunderstand her in the beginning. And then did, then it became a more like, oh, it's we, don't, we have no desire to understand you. And we have every desire to sort of manipulate your words and make sure you are um, painted as different than you know, what you're trying to say or whatever. I mean, you can even hear it in her her frustration when the when the clip from the her talking about Bernie <laughs> came out and she was like, I thought y'all wanted me to be honest and authentic. And then I am. And you still yell at me, you know, like <laughs> she cannot win for losing. I feel like it's sort of like this. That could have been the subtext for the documentary. And I just think, you know, I actually I was honestly kind of touched. I don't know if touched is the right word, but like really affected by Bill Clinton, who seemed like this was, I've heard him speak openly about his abuse of power and affair with Monica Lewinsky. um, But the way he spoke about it in the documentary seemed really sincere and self-reflective to me. And it it helped me sort of think about things in a different way. I didn't think there, they would, there would be much to learn about that particular time in history from them, but I, I felt like I did. I liked the friend who said it would be so much easier if they loved other people. Like she said, they love each other. It would be so much easier if they didn't. So much less complicated. Yeah, when they were young. I mean, he should have picked a beauty queen and she should have stayed in D.C. Like that's on paper. That would have worked so much better for them. I think people see it as so often it's like she glommed on to him because she was ambitious. 
But he has to love her because she made his life so difficult. I mean, they pretty much argue, a lot of people argue that that's why he lost the governorship the first time. It's because she was, she didn't want to change her name and she worked and people just didn't know. She didn't have a kid and people just didn't know what to make of her. And it really was hard. And like the name changing and all that stuff, like, yeah. You know, part of what I kept thinking as I watched this is there, you know, there's nothing in her personal demeanor that inspires in me a love or a hate. Like, she's just this very, like, rational person mm-hmm. who who is a policy wonk, who has a really calm way of communicating even about intense things. Um, she's She's not... The criticism that she always gets is is a little bit true. Like, she's just not charismatic, right? And that is okay. I say this as a non-charismatic person myself. I understand. But it's like, for her to have become such an incredibly polarizing figure with that personality says so much about mm-hmm. how women are viewed and how women's marriage choices are viewed. It's just, it's Crazy. I can understand her bewilderment at how people feel yeah. about her so yeah. well, especially after spending all this time kind of watching her life if, uh, unfold through the lens of this documentary. Well, and it's so brought home for me something I'd been thinking about since Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the Democratic primary, which when she ran for the presidency, both in 2008 and 2016, there was this perception that, you know, she was the elite. She was inevitable. Um, She, you know, all the all the deck was stacked. And I thought, yeah, because (laughs) that's the only way a woman would get anywhere close and still look what happened. Still look what happened, like that she came in as a former first lady, senator, secretary of state. I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before, but it was just the way they put it all together and watching the female um, candidacies this round that made me realize, like, yeah, I mean, you have to be, it's the classic thing, right? We have to work twice as hard, which I think it's, you know, it's hard to argue watching her life that she <laughs> she hasn't been working twice as hard the whole time. It just, you know, so intense to live through sort of her life, think it's just one person, (laughs) just one lady's life in American history and how there's just how much there is. I will say, I do want to say that um, my favorite moment, except for the fact when I about fell off my couch because I didn't realize Monica Lewinsky was Jennifer Palmieri's intern. What? What? Can we take a minute for that? Holy crap. Was did you did you find the moment I was obsessed with when they were doing the debate prep? I did. <laughs> and oh, my God, y'all, there's this moment where they're doing debate prep and Philippe, I can't remember his last name, is playing Donald Trump. And she's like she's got this big park on. She's got her glasses on like she's like got yoga pants. She's totally chill. They're clearly just rehearsing. And he said she's I don't even remember what she says, but he's like newsflash and like interrupts her rudely, which, of course, you know, I worked on her staff. People don't tiptoe around her. It's not like that. But it's just, you know, when you're a United States senator and a secretary of state, people don't speak rudely to you (laughs) in your professional environment for the most part. And so when he does that, like you can just like it takes her. It takes her about, I would say, three and a half seconds to remember. Oh, right. He's playing a part. But she whips around and looks at him. And I thought. Oh, my God, I need a gift of that immediately. It's so good. Well, if you are at all interested in American history, 
However you feel mm-hmm. about Hillary Clinton, I think this is a really good use of your time because so it is not a pep rally about her. No. I think it really does take you through her life in a way that is intimate. And to be sure, it, it lets her tell her own story. And I think that's really important. And also qu- very fair and curious mm-hmm. um, and and open as you go through it. So a good use of your time. The other part I wanted to ask you about is my other favorite moment. And I, I can't remember who it was, but it was the um, she was a great she had some of the many, many great points throughout the documentary, um, the media consultant. And then at the end, they were talking about 2016. And she says, you know what I tell people is when you're when you're talking about 50,000 votes, um, such a small margin in these few states, whatever people's theory is, I say, yep, you're right. James Comey. Yep, that was it. Russians. Mm hmm. Yep. That was it. the fact that she was a woman. Yep. That was it. Like when it's such a small margin, then you're never going to piece out exactly what it is. And so it was. Yes. The answer is yes. Whatever your concern with what happened in 2016, the answer is yes. I thought that was really insightful, too. So brilliant. As we are talking about this woman who has changed American history in so many ways for women, we would be remiss if we did not mention that today is Equal Pay Day. Mm -hmm. Equal Pay Day symbolizes how far into the next year women have to work to earn what men did the previous year. And, of course, this is on average. I don't want to have an argument about how this is calculated, everybody. Just good to recognize that we still have a ways to go. So what that means is... If we truly had equal pay, December 31, everybody would be in the same place on average. But for all women compared to men, March 31st is the day that we catch up with men. And then it's later for other groups. So for moms, equal pay day is June 4th. For black women, equal pay day is August 13th. For Native American women, it's October 1st. And for Latina women, it's October 29th, which... If you're rounding, is basically two years. And it's unacceptable. And as we put the pieces back together from coronavirus, I hope that we can address these issues and do it much more thoughtfully. We also wanted to share something, uh, hopefully, that is inspiring to you as we leave you today. This came from one of our listeners who works in a childhood sponsorship nonprofit, And she said, folks in the United States typically give $40 a month to a child or elder in the materially poorest communities in the world through her nonprofit. There's a pen pal relationship, and then social work and services are carried out. She had someone call to cancel his sponsorship. She said, we wish him the best, said we would love to have him back when it's viable for him. Totally understand. And then he called back a few days later and had reflected on it and said he would probably be okay. He was acting out of a sense of fear, but wanted to act out of a place of abundance. And she said, this situation is dire for the world's poorest who are not employed and generally make money with ad hoc sales that will not be possible as the economy slow and people stay inside. That he wanted to continue his support really touched her heart and ours. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsu Politics. We'll be back in your ears tomorrow on our other podcast, The Nuance Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Martha Branitsky, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Amy Whited, and Allie Edwards. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.